All right, are you ready for God's word? I want to jump into God's word. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14? And uh, we have been in this, uh, this forward flow, if you will. I think sometimes you got to find, find your flow. And, and to me, I grew up um, with, a, with a dad that, that taught me that the Holy Spirit has a flow. And you, you got to find the flow of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I was trained as a worship leader. And so I still kind of preach like a worship leader um, because when I start preaching, I'm just looking for where the flow is. Same way when, when, when you lead worship, you're just trying to find that flow, right? As soon as we find that flow, it's like there's a river flowing. As soon as I find it, I'm getting an inner tube and jumping in. I'm going to see where it goes. That's the way I was trained. And so we've been in a forward flow. It's a season that we called forward. Next week, we start I Heart My Church, which is a different kind of forward, uh, but we've been talking about how we move forward. It's been a season for us, uh, not, just, not just a series. And so if, by the way, I, I don't know, it, it's, I know I'm partial, but I think some of the messages that God has given me over the last four weeks have been some of the best that I've ever preached. And so, and I don't say that because I get it. I'm, I'm the donkey, right? And like Balaam's donkey. And if God can talk through a donkey, I get it. I'm the donkey. I'm okay with that. I, I, you know, it's kind of like... Like when Jesus rode into town on the colt, how silly would it be for the colt to say, look, everybody's screaming Hosanna at me and throwing palm branches down. That'd been stupid. No, it's because Jesus is on your back, right? And so, so I totally get where I'm at in this thing. So I, I really don't, I, I'm confident, but I'm not arrogant. You understand what I'm saying? But sometimes I sit back and say, man, that was good. That was, you know, that was good. And, and so that's the way I felt. And I've got one today that I feel that way about as well as we, as we kind of, kind of come to the end of this forward flow in this way and, and shift gears. And so, so first, uh, first Samuel chapter 14, I'm just going to dive in. And so, so here's what's going on in first Samuel chapter 14. Let me back up. So, you know, there's Abraham and that's where God's people come from. And then there's slavery in Egypt and Moses delivers them. Right. And then finally Joshua leads them into the promised land and then they settle in the promised land. And there are 12 tribes that settle into the promised land. And the tribes are actually governed independently uh, at this point. Um, but about 1175 BC, a Hellenistic group called the, called the Philistines. I'm laughing because never mind. Anyways, I can't say it out loud. So anyways, um, cause I'll get an email, but anyways, um, but, but an, a Hellenistic group, you could just take the first part of that and probably figure out what I was saying. There was a heck of a group that, that settled into the settled Southwest, um, of the children of Israel, Southwest of the promised land. And, and they become a thorn in the side of, of Israel. And so what happens is every time there was a threat, God would raise up a judge, right? That, and so the time of judges began. And so there were lots, there was like Jephthah and Gideon and Deborah girl power, right? Israel had a girl judge, right? And she, she was awesome. Uh, the last judge is Samuel. And so every time there was a threat, God would raise up a judge. A judge would unite the 12 tribes, extinguish the threat, and then they would go back to kind of their independent governance, uh, governance, if you will. And so, but, but now Samuel is the last judge and he is getting old and advanced in years. And so Israel says, Hey, we want a King. And Samuel's like, I don't think you want a King. Yes, we want a King, you know, and so Samuel, um, God uses Samuel to appoint a man named Saul, King Saul. And so Saul uh, becomes king at like uh, 10, around 1050 BC. He's going to be king for 40 years. And, and so, and so, but, but. But a lot of the battles are with this group called the Philistines. They end up invading uh, 
the children of Israel's territory, invading the promised land. They established these five strongholds or five cities uh, in, in, in the promised land. And so in verse 7 and 14, we're at war with, with the Philistines and it's gotten bad. So what happens is Paul, you got to understand, these people are not warriors. Paul, Paul pulls together an army of about 3,000 people and he gives his son Jonathan 1,000 men to command and he takes 2,000 men to command. And then Jonathan attacks one of these strongholds, these garrisons of the Philistines and, and has a great victory. And Saul kind of gets a little conceited and the Philistines get a little bit angry. And so they start uniting forces and now they're going to come with, with, I mean, it's kind of one of those things you, 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 you tell them, Hell's coming and I'm coming with it. I mean, it's a, it's kind of the wide earth kind. They're like, we're going to extinguish everything, you know, and, and, and so. Paul now Saul wants to gather his army, but now he can only get 600 men because when they start figuring out what's going on, they start hiding in caves and in rocks, right? And so the Philistines come and they've got 30,000 charioteers, you know, and, and they've got an unlimited supply. I mean, the Bible says their infantry was as vast as the sand on a seashore. And, and so they're coming against Israel with, with fury, right? And they're, they're, they're going to come at them in, in a frontal attack. And then they're dividing up and they're going like north and around to the south. And, and essentially they're going to divide and conquer the whole, the whole, the whole people. So this is not just one battle. This is what hinges, because if they extinguish Saul, the king and his son and the army of now 600 men, it's kind of over for Israel. So this is a pretty intense moment that we're in, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, right? And, and so Israel's kind of hiding um, and, and, and Saul is kind of discouraged. And, and then this, and then, and then weird stuff happens. Because if God's involved, weird stuff can happen. Right? You're not limited to what you see if God's involved. And so, so uh, yeah. So, um, 1 Samuel 14, we're going to pick up reading. This is one day. I like that it starts out one day. And, and I like that because we always say, have you ever had one of those days? Have you ever had... One of the, and, and typically that's a negative connotation that, that well is, but what if, what if today was one of those days for a miracle? Like it could be, well, I'm having one of those days or it could be, no, it's one of those days where it looked bad when I woke up this morning, but by the time I go to bed, I won't be looking at the same thing the same way anymore. And so it was one, on one of those days that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistines. Oh, by the way, can we, can we welcome those watching online? Hey, if you're watching online, thanks for joining us this morning. So glad to see you. God bless you. All right, so come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. And Saul was staying in the outskirts of Giba in the pomegranate cave of Migron. And the people were with him were about 600, including Ahia, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Come on, somebody. I actually read that. Some of you thought I was speaking in tongues right there. Somebody got an interpretation. Anyways, um, so, sorry. You had to grow up where I grew up to understand. Anyway, never mind. So, 
uh, wearing, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan was gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side, and the name of one was Bo- Bosets, and the name of the other was Sine, and, and, and one crag rose to the north of Michmash, and the other to the south front of Gibba. Is everybody clear on what's going on now? Is anyone here in Charlie Brown's parents? All right, so this yeah. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be. Mm. It may be. It may, it may be. Mm. It just might be. That the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. You know, he said, I'm your ride or die. I'm going with you, man. All right. Then Jonathan said, behold. We'll cross over to the men and we'll show us. You got to love this strategy. We've been hiding in a cave, but here's my plan, armor bearer. We're going to cross over and and we're going to show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait, we're going to come down to you, then we're just going to hold our place. But look at this. And we won't go up. But if they say, come up to us, then we're going to go up for the Lord's given them in. Think about that. If they say, don't come up, we're not going to come up. But if they say, come up here so we can whoop you, then we're going to go. Because that's really the terminology that's being used in the original language. It's not like come up for tea. It's not climb up here and let me teach you something, big boy. Just how big boy are you? You know what I'm saying? I'm going to show you something. And so here's what Jonathan says. Basically, if they say they're going to kill us, we'll know to go up. That's a good plan. (laughs) So glad I'm a part of this plan. And they say, it's going to be assigned to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison held Jonathan and his army and said, come up here so we can whoop you. Look, come up here and we'll show you a thing. I got, got something to show you. I'm going to show you. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, let's go. I don't know about you, but this armor bearer was extremely loyal or extremely stupid. Because Jonathan's like, hey, perhaps sign me up. Maybe. Okay. Good for me. One of us, you know, 30,000 of them. Seems like good odds. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me. The Lord has given them in the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and the armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer, the one they made, killed 20 men as if it were a half a furrow's length in an acre. Of land. And just let me help you. A half acre. They killed 20 men in a half acre. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Then we're Saul. 
And then the watchman of Saul at Gibba of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was... Now it says, this version says dispersing here and there. One version says they were melting away in all directions. That the enemy was melting away. I was thinking about how the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the... That's what I was thinking about right there because the way my mind works. And so it says... And so, so anyways, they're dispersing. And then Saul said, hey, let's take a head count and see who's not here. And they counted, and behold, it was just Jonathan and his arm bear. They, they were just at 598 after they counted, right? Just 598. And so, and so um, I want you to, to help me announce this title to, to your neighbor. I don't do this all the time, but sometimes when I have a statement, and, and I don't have a title as much as I have just a truth, a statement. And so I want you to look at your neighbor, and I want you to start with your second favorite neighbor. In other words, when I started saying, look at your neighbor, you started thinking about the one you're going to look at, right? And what I want you to do is just go, I want, you to, I want you to reverse the flow. I want you to go to the stranger first, right? You don't know. And if you're single and they're single, stare in their eyes, this could be a moment for you, right? But I want you to look at your neighbor, and I want you to say this, neighbor, you are... Enough. I want you to look at your other neighbor and say this. Neighbor, you may not believe it, but you are enough. Can we pray, Jesus? We thank you so much, God, for your grace and power. In this moment, we are sharing. God, let us never, never, never be the same after this moment in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I am um, probably like a lot of people. I have voices in my head. And, and um, now before, listen, 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 Linda. You're not listening to me, Linda. Listen, you have them too, right? I, and it's those little things that come up typically when, when there's a situation, there's a stressor, there's a challenge, right? And, and you hear things, right? You, you hear things like, like you're not good enough. You hear things like you're not smart enough. You hear things like you're not qualified enough. And, and I've found that that, that voice, it, it changes um, kind of the context, but that voice of you are not enough seems to be very prevalent in my life. And at every phase of my life and ministry, sometimes it tells me I'm not a good enough husband. Sometimes it tells me I'm not a good enough father. Sometimes it tells me I'm not a good enough leader. Sometimes it tells me I'm not a good enough pastor. And in times like this, when we're, we're trying to build an $8 million facility debt-free, it tells me that I don't have what it takes to lead a people there. And so I found that when, when anxiety gets high, when stressors happen, there seems to be a constant narrative that loves to play in my head that says, you are simply not enough. You are not enough. You, you, don't, you don't deserve a place here. You don't have a place. You don't have a seat at the table. Right? You don't belong. Everybody else belongs. I can, I can be some of the rooms I've been in with some of the people I've been in. I'm not like, going to start name dropping, but, but I can be in that situation and someone tell me or that voice tell me you're the only one that doesn't belong in this room right now. Now I've learned because I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. And I've learned to employ the Holy Spirit and, and ministry and pastors and counselors and all that. And so, so now that voice, what I found, you can't get the voice out of your head, but you can put a new voice in your head. And sometimes we're trying to get a voice out. Well, you can't get a voice out as much as you can get a new voice in. 
And so I've learned that we all have what I call limbic lies, that, 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 that when our limbic system is engaged, that voice gets really loud telling us we're not enough. And we can't get it out, but we could find out the truth of God's word as to what he says about us because I found his opinion of me is way higher than my opinion of me. And so this is, when I saw this text, I I thought it was so interesting, the dichotomy, if you will, between Saul and Jonathan, between not enough and, and, and maybe I am enough. And so I just, I, that's, what, that's what I want to preach. So you want to write this down? I'm, I'm going to be in a hurry. But here's the first thing that, that I think where you have to start, you write this down, is God's word tells you what doesn't belong. God's word tells you what doesn't belong. And, and, and here's what I like. Verse six is kind of the climax. It's, it's like the big moment in this passage. It's where the shift happens, right? And, and, and verse six, Jonathan says this, he says, Hey, let's, let's go over. Um, let's go over to the garrison of the, of these uncircumcised. Now that could sound like he's just insulting them, but it's not an insult as much as it is intel. Because what Jonathan was smart enough to, to do, to observe, is, is he was looking at the situation. He said, now hang on. We're in the land that was promised to Abraham, that was given to our tribe, that God drove out the inhabitants. In other words, we're in our, this is our home. This is our country. And, and I'm realizing that I have been marked in a way that they have not been marked. And this land belongs to those who have been marked with a covenant to inhabit it. And so the first thing Jonathan said was, you know, wait a second. Because I'm marked, I actually belong here. One of the reasons I need God's word and I need a promise from God is it tells me that I belong. Because I've got an enemy that's going to make sure I feel like I never belong. But I actually belong. And when I know that I am covenant with God, that, that my heart has been circumcised, it has been marked in the New Testament, that's where circumcision is. But, but I am marked, then when opposition comes, because the opposition will make you think that your promise is up for grabs, that your position is not settled, right? That, that your inheritance is not guaranteed. That's, he wants to call into question the absolutes. Some, some, right? Are you in the, and so, but when I know I belong, when I know it's mine, that settles that part of the debate. Are are you with me? No, 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 no. I belong. I have a seat. I'm in the family. I'm marked. Me and God, we're together. Like, like you can't convince me I don't belong. I may not feel like I belong, but, but I'm marked as one who is in the family. I have a birthright that is held by Jesus. It's settled. And when I know I belong, then it's easy to look and say, but now if I belong, but I don't think you belong. And one of the reasons why you need a word from God is sometimes in your life, you need to know what doesn't belong there. Because in Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable uh, about this farmer and he goes out and he's sowing wheat. And it says, then the enemy comes and he starts sowing tares along with the wheat. What is a tear? It's basically a weed that kind of looks like wheat, but it has no fruit. Right? It doesn't produce anything. And so here's what he says. One of the strategies of the enemy is, is, is in, your, in, your, in your life is to start sowing things that don't belong there. 
that, that part of his role is to try to convince you that what is yours isn't yours. That you have to, you have to tolerate something that's not really from the Lord. That, that you don't really have power. See, when I'm looking at this, I'm like, hey, this is where Jonathan came to. Wait a second, wait a second. The Philistines, they're squatters in my land. They don't have a deed to this thing. Have you ever felt like that, that there's somebody squatting on your promise? Sitting on your promise, blocking your promise, trying to keep you from your promise, trying to convince you that what God has said is yours is not yours. Have you ever noticed how the enemy will bark the loudest anytime you're getting close to something that belongs to you and try to convince you that you're not supposed to have it? It wasn't really meant for you. God may have promised it to them, but it's not good enough. They may fit, but you don't fit. They can have it, but you can't have it. Have you ever noticed how, 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 how the enemy will actually try to possess your promise and then keep you from it? And this is what we're seeing here with Jonathan is that the enemy has come in and the enemy is trying to take possession of something that belongs to him. And he was smart enough to say, wait a second, wait a second, let me think about this. Seems like I'm marked in a way they're not marked in this land. So it seems like, uh, it seems like, seems like one of us needs to go. Not going to be me. Sometimes you got to know what, what doesn't, sometimes you got to know who doesn't belong in your life. I think they call that boundaries, but. Sometimes you have to know that the enemy will put people in your life. You know, maybe you shouldn't be trying to figure out who you can live with. Maybe you should figure out who you can't live without. And maybe you should just wait until that person comes along because the enemy, don't listen, I was a single adult pastor, a student pastor, and I've been a pastor. I know the enemy will put people in your path. Maybe you need to pray before you go into business with them because just because they say they're a Christian businessman doesn't mean they're a Christian businessman. I'm just saying that sometimes the enemy will put people in your life that don't need. And so this is why I've got to have a word from God. John 8, um, Jesus actually tells us a little bit about the devil in, in John eight forty four. He actually says this, that he's the father of lies. And when he speaks, he speaks lies. And I found that the enemy of our soul, he is incapable of saying anything that's true. And so his job, think about this, is to sow tares. It's, it's to tell us things belong that don't belong, people belong that don't belong, that we can't change things that we've been empowered to change, that we don't have a right to things that Jesus has qualified us for. He's constantly trying to lie to us, right, and sow enough doubt in our souls, right, that, that, that we start accepting and tolerating, well, we start accepting and tolerating squatters in our promised land. But Jesus said this a few verses earlier. He said, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. In other words, Jesus said, this is why you need the word of God. He said, you're my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Here's why I need a word from God and a promise from God because it's not truth that sets me free. It's the truth I know. Truth, truth is only as good as how much of it you know. 
That's, that's why I think that studying the word of God on your own is a good idea because even though I'm long-winded and I'm going to preach like 50 minutes, no matter how hard I try to preach 35, I just can't say it that fast. And so, so I'm going to preach like 50 minutes and, and at the end of the day, 50 minutes is enough to get you to tomorrow, but it may not be enough to get you to the next time you come to church. It may be enough today to tell you what doesn't belong, but it might not be enough a month from now to tell you what doesn't belong. You need a word from God because God's word is always going to, number one, it's going to tell you that you belong. And number two, it'll start telling you what else doesn't belong. Here's the second thing that, that, that I want to pull out of this passage is that you won't find out what God will do until you do what you can do. I could just walk off right now. Because as a pastor, I've seen a lot of people get stuck right here. We're talking about moving forward. And a lot of people get stuck right here because, and, and we have a spiritual term that we call doing nothing and we call it waiting on the Lord. And we spiritualize lethargy. See, first, first Samuel 14 verse 2 it says Paul was staying in the outskirts of Gibba under a pomegranate tree in Migron he's in a cave and then it talks about the priest that was with him and then it references the ephod now to, to me that's that's important because the ephod was something they used to hear from God it had these these two stones the 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 ur and and the tumim and they were these the, these two stones that they kind of used to discern the the will of God and so Saul listen to this he's in a cave he's under a tree and the ephod is with him But he stopped. What's he waiting on? Don't know, I'm waiting on the Lord. Waiting on God. I think sometimes we, we miss that waiting on God, um, waiting on God is active. Waiting on God doesn't, doesn't mean I have assumed a position of hopelessness and helplessness and I'm just hoping God might blow something up if I just sit here until I die. Waiting on God is active. It is actively pressing in. It is actively seeking the Lord. It is actively leaning into the Lord. In fact, uh, Lamentations, I like this verse. If you need to clarify what waiting is, it says, Lamentations 3.25 says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. But then it rephrases the, the former with this, to the soul who seeks him. And it's just equated seeking and waiting. Yet in our minds, we don't see them all the time as the same. We think, well, I guess I'm just waiting till God does something and I'll sit here and if I'm still alive whenever he does whatever he's going to do, then yeah, that would be great. You know what I'm saying? If we finally get the TPS reports. I'm sorry, that's movie reference. Anyways, um, that would be great. Anyways, never mind. So, but the point is that, 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 that waiting looks more like seeking. That just because I may not be exactly clear on, on how this is supposed to end, it doesn't remove any responsibility for me to try to find it. To try to discern it. To try to determine it. And, and when I look at this passage, I see Saul staying and Jonathan seeking. 
Saul is staying in the cave. Jonathan seeking for where God might do something. I was thinking about the, the lepers. Um, and I don't have time to give you the whole context, but, but, but Israel's under siege, and, and they've been under siege for a while. People are starving. They're, they're eating their pets, essentially. That's a bad day. I'm just saying. I mean, they're selling feces as food. What's for breakfast? I'm sorry. Anyways, um, and, and, and the lepers are like, we can sit here till we die, or we could start walking towards the enemy. They'll either kill us, or maybe they'll feed us. And they walk towards the enemy, and God uses that to, to turn the enemy on itself and deliver Israel. And all they said was, should we sit here till we die? And I just wonder how many people are going to sit where they're at till they die. I don't know about you, but if I get in a traffic jam, I'm hooking up my GPS saying, is there another route? I don't care if it's an hour out of the way. I'd rather be moving than stopping. I'll, I'll, I'll drive to Canada before I'll sit an hour on I-20. I don't care. I'm going somewhere. I'm not going to sit here till I die. I have driven all over East Texas because you know, coming back and forth from the Metroplex, if I-20 gets jammed up, you could die out there, right? And I have driven all over the world through people's cow pastures because I'm like, I, I got a truck. I ain't staying here to see if we ever get past this. I'm going to find another. I'm not staying, I'm seeking. That's what John says. So come, let's go over. Let's go. Simple plan. Let's go. Where are we going? That way. See, see, check this. What if instead of saying, I don't know what to do, what if you did what you knew to do? Because I found we know enough in a lot of cases. Like people are like, oh, I wish I could get out of debt. Listen, I love Dave Ramsey. I'd love for you to get in a financial peace uh, 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 life group, right? But let me help you with something. If you make 5000 a month and you spend 6000 a month, you don't need a degree in finance to figure out you're going to be hurting after a while. That's called math. Are you with me? You probably know enough to make a budget. And you keep her, God, I need a raise. God, deliver me financially. Oh, Lord, Jesus, I need a mirror. Multiply the fish and the loaves, Jesus. And God's up there. Get a calculator and a pencil. You don't need a miracle. You need a budget. Amen. <laughs> Maybe, I think we're knowledge junkies, aren't we? Like, we got to read the new book, read the new blog, listen to the new YouTube channel. We just got so much knowledge, and we're so caught up getting knowledge, we don't do what we already know to do. Like, you know enough to get in shape. Count your calories. Right? I mean, you know, I, I'm all about fitness programs and fitness plans, and, and I think you should have a plan, but I'm just saying, you probably know enough. You don't need the latest and greatest workout. You just got to get off the couch. Right, I'm just saying you probably know you probably know enough to fix your relationship right now. You don't need another seminar. You need to, to go on a date with the one you're married to. Okay, I, I got it. Anyway, so what, what if we stop focusing on what we don't know and just started doing what we do know? 
What if we stopped praying for knowledge and started asking God for courage? I think many times we don't know what, many times we, we, we know what we could do, but, but, but it's just easier to say we're waiting on God because we want God to remove all the risks. This is, what, this is what Jonathan said. Hey, let's, let's go. It may be that God will, will work for us. Can, can I tell you something? He didn't, he didn't ask for a new sign. He didn't ask for a new strategy. He didn't ask for a new promise. He just went off of what God said. I'll give you this land and drive out the inhabitants that aren't you. He's like, I don't need a new word. The old one is still in force. Sometimes we're asking God for a new word when we could be running with the old one. And, and can I just tell you that your breakthrough doesn't come by what you know. It comes by what you do. You don't get a breakthrough because you know something. Think about that. If you just start going through the scripture, Joshua didn't get a breakthrough because he knew how to fight. Joshua, to get a breakthrough, had to get off his face on the sand and go march around Jericho. The widow that Elisha goes to, she didn't get a breakthrough because she knew how to cook or she knew how to clean or, or, or she knew whatever. She got a breakthrough because when he said, go gather the vessels, not a few, she went and gathered a bunch of vessels, not knowing what was going to fill them up. Right? Naaman didn't get a breakthrough because he had a degree in biology. He didn't even have a breakthrough because he had a word from God. He had a breakthrough because he finally went down to the Jordan river and started dipping until he went under for the seventh time. Abraham didn't get a child because he understood more about, about conception and biology. He got a child because he loaded the donkey and was willing to go to a place he'd never been. Gideon didn't deliver Israel because he was a great military strategist. He delivered Israel because he went and narrowed down a people down to 300 men and gave them flashlights and jugs and a trumpet. I like First Samuel 4, 14, 7 because it has this phrase, the armor bearer says, do all this in your heart. And I think sometimes we're asking God for a word when he's wanting us just to do what he's already put in our hearts. Do, do, do what is, that's like, like a great mission statement. You know, I, I've, I, I preached this one time and I said, you know what, you know what, when, when, you have, when you walk with God, faith will nudge you. Sometimes you got to live by the nudge. Some of the greatest miracles I've ever seen were by a nudge. I didn't have like the heavens didn't open and lightning didn't come down and and there weren't trumpets and baby angels and and the sea didn't part. It was just a nudge and it just blew something wide open. And sometimes we just have to learn to 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 follow our hearts a little bit. And I know what you're saying. Well, wait, 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 because you've heard me say, right? Your heart is deceitful. But but you need to understand something because Proverbs 21 says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs. Um, also says, trust in the Lord. Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and and then he will direct. And and this is what I want you to understand about your heart, is is that your heart can work against you, or your heart can work for you, depending on whose hand your heart is in. 
my heart in my hands can lie to me, be deceitful. My heart in someone else's hands can, can, can cause all types of ruckus, right? It can take me. But if I got my heart in God's hands, then he can direct it and he can lead it and he can nudge it a little bit to say, hey, what if you just went over there to see what I might do? What if you just, what if you just trusted that God could actually direct you because Ezekiel said this and then it's quoted in Hebrews and that is God said, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that I can actually write on it. And so what if I could trust that if my heart's in God's hands, then I can follow the nudge and the prompting of my heart. I don't need a new word. I don't need a new promise. I don't need a new strategy. I probably already know what to do. Maybe I just need to try it to see what happens because I've found that God cannot do all that's in his heart until I do what he's put in my heart. Now I preach to get you to this last point. And when I say this, I'm going to pause and I want you to think about it. You ready to write this down? God does not need who you aren't. God does not need who you aren't. I like this text in verse six because Jonathan says, nothing can hinder the, let's go. Maybe, it may be that, that God will work for us. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many Or by few. God doesn't need everybody. He just needs somebody. See, I like it because Saul is looking at the same situation that Jonathan is looking at. And Saul's assumption is that he is not enough. He doesn't have enough. In fact, can, can, can I tell you where, where for me this, this whole passage started? Um, 1 Samuel 13, if you go back one chapter, verse 22, this is what I loved about this. It said, so on the day of battle, I'd never seen this, and I've read this I don't know how many times. On the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So let's, let's do a quick um, inventory. There's like 30,000 chariot people and an infantry we can't even number over there. Over here, we have 600 men and two swords. Like I'm having a moment from, from the Princess Bride where he's like, if just we had a Holocaust cloak, I could make something out of it. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and Andre the Giant's like, oh God, and I'm a miracle max. And yeah, never mind. It's his movie quote. Um, but, but think about this because, because Saul is looking at the situation and, 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 and he is stopped. He is staying still because he is assuming I am not enough. We are not enough. We do not have enough. Jonathan's looking at the same situation and thinking it might be God setting us up for victory. It may not be your situation. It may be how you see it. Now that's good preaching. I could preach that, but that's not the point I want to preach right now. Let me say it a different way. It may be your situation or it may be how you see yourself. 
It may have nothing to do with the situation. It may have everything to do with a mirror. Because it's the same situation and Saul says, I'm not enough. And Jonathan says, I may be enough. So maybe victory is not tied to what your situation looks like to you. It may be tied to what you look like to you. Can I tell you what I love about the Apostle Paul? He was so real. In 1 Corinthians 12, 9, he says a famous passage that we quote all the time. This is where he, he had a thorn in the flesh, and I'm not going to go into what all that was, and there's lots of debate and yada, yada. To, to me, it was the persecution of him. It just, bottom line. And, and, he said, and, then, and then he asked God to, to do something about it three times, and God said no. And then God said this. He says, my grace is all you need. My power, check this, my power works best in Where does his power work best? So now I'm glad to boast about my, what? I'm glad, why am I boasting about my weakness? So that the power of Christ can work through me. Can can I tell you something? Most of the time when we set out to do something, we take an inventory of our strengths. God, this is what I'm good at. This is what I know how to do. These are the things I can do. And unfortunately for us, most of the time when God asks us then to do something, we take an inventory of our weaknesses and we say, this is why we can't. I'm not enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I don't have a college degree. I've never done this before. I don't have any experience. Thank God they didn't ask David how much experience he had slaying giants. You know what I'm saying? Like, could I see your resume? Have you ever killed a giant? And so all of a sudden we start inventorying our weaknesses as disqualifying us. And what Paul said, check this, you may want to write this down. Your weakness makes more room for God's power than your strength. Your weakness... All the things that that you would list as why you can't and why you shouldn't and why God will not use you and why God shouldn't even ask you and why you shouldn't even try, all of those things are the very reason you should because it's your weakness that makes room for God's power, not your strength. Your strength makes room for you to be seen. Your weakness makes room for God to be seen. It's God doesn't need who you are. Nick, can, can I say something else? <clears throat> Thank you. I appreciate that. It's always nice to ask for permission. <laughs> Just like God doesn't need who you aren't, God doesn't need what you don't have. God doesn't need... Because see, here's the problem. Israel is still in the Bronze Age the Philistines are in the Iron Age. And the, the Philistines had a monopoly on, on blacksmithing and all that kind of stuff. And so if Israel wanted to sharpen an axe or a plow, they had to go to a Philistine because they didn't have the equipment or the technology. They were still in the Bronze Age. So that's why this time they've got sticks and switches and rocks and the Philistines have swords and spears, right? Because the Philistines weren't going to give them swords and spears because they 
right? They're, they're enemies, right? Are you with me? And, and so, so when they inventory, I think Saul's sitting there and he's like, man, they got chariots and everybody's got a sword and armor and a spear and, and let's do a quick inventory. One, two, we got two swords. 600 people, two, one, two, one, two. <laughs> Let me count again. Two, one. <laughs> Can we look again? Let's look again. I don't know. Did y'all see anything? Let me come back. Surely there's more than, let me say one, two. Um, two fish, five loaves, one, two. Multiply, multiply. See, it wasn't time for that yet. But here's what I need you to understand. God doesn't need what you don't have. He doesn't need what you don't have. And I think so many times we disqualify ourselves and say, I don't have enough. And enough could be education or intellect or ability or gifting. But we say we don't have enough, therefore we're disqualified. And what God says is I didn't call you because you had enough. I called you because you are enough for me to use. It wasn't so much, I think, that Jonathan thought he was arrogant and prideful and I am the end all. No, I don't know if Jonathan even thought he was enough in and of himself. But he did think this, I am enough for God to use. And if God called me, he must have called me knowing I only have one sword. He must have called me knowing what I don't have. And, and if I don't have it, then he must not need it. If I lost it, it's not needed for my victory. If, if it's not with me, I don't need it to win. I only need what I have when God called me and he'll give me anything that I need. And I think sometimes we say, well, I lost that. So now I can't win. Well, that, 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 that went away. And, and here's what, if you lost it, you didn't need it. If they left you, and they're in your history, they're not tied to your destiny. Because if they can leave you, they weren't going with you. So, Saul is stuck because he's looking at what he doesn't have and Jonathan's moving forward because he's like, well, I got one sword. Imagine the inventory when they start realizing something's going on. Paul's like, inventory. Okay, 598 people. One sword. Oh, <laughs> just one. <laughs> 50% of our... Anyways. <laughs> Can I tell you that with God sometimes... Okay, this is so good. Saul has 600 men. Jonathan has one. Sometimes with God, having too much is a disadvantage. Because Saul was looking at his, what was left of his army, the bad news bears. And he's looking at the bad news bears. And he's thinking, 600 and 200, 602, two swords, 600. How do I get these 600 to beat that 30,000? And because he had 600, he was looking at the 600. Yes, that's right. But because Jonathan didn't have anybody except yes. this armor bearer, he was looking at God. Yes. Paul was trying to figure out how to get the army to win. And Jonathan 
was trying to figure out how God wanted to win. See, sometimes we, we want a lot, but sometimes a lot can be a disadvantage because with God, usually the big comes from the small. Right? Philip, I know you said everybody's hungry because you think I'm preaching too long. This is Jesus. Not me. I don't preach that long. It's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll pull, the, pull them out later. That's all right. But anyways, he said, Philip, why don't you give them something to eat if you're worried about it? And Philip's... All we have are two fish and five loaves. It's not enough. And Jesus is like, oh, that, yeah, have them sit down. Did you hear what I said? Five, 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 eight, two, five, two, two swords, two fish, five loaves. That's all we have. That's enough. Because most of the time, God brings whatever you need out of a seed. And we're focused on what we need. And God's like, all you need is a seed. Whether it's two loaves and five fishes, whether it's a handful of meal, whether it's just a little bit of oil left, God seems to bring the big out of the small. And sometimes when we have too much, it becomes a disadvantage because we put too much trust and too much faith and too much focus on what we have instead of it driving us back to God to say we don't have enough, which means you must be enough to, you must be be about to maybe you're gonna uh, this got to be something that because we don't have so you must be so Jonathan looks at the same situation and where Saul said we don't have enough Jonathan pretty much said but maybe I am enough and where Saul didn't think he was enough Jonathan thought I might be enough and I just wonder, I just wonder, I wonder if you would consider that maybe wherever you're at in your life and whatever you're facing, I wonder if you would consider that you may be enough for God to use, that you may be enough for what you have to face, that what is in your hand may be enough to win the, the battle. That, that maybe you're not waiting on God to do something else, that maybe God has already done what he's going to do until you do all you can do, then he'll do what he can do. When you do what's in your heart, he can release what's in his heart. Maybe you've been disqualifying yourself because you believed a lie that says you're not enough. When, when, when the word of God clearly says that you are more than a conqueror through Christ who loved you, that, that God always leads you in triumph, that you are chosen, you are loved, right? That, that, that you you are anointed and you are assigned and you are destined and you are purposed and you are justified and you are redeemed. Maybe, maybe you're enough. That's all I'm trying to say. Maybe instead of backing down and saying, I'm not enough. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Instead of agreeing with that, maybe you could agree with the word of God that says, not only are you enough, but you're more than enough. Why don't you stand? That's all I had to say.